This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of sacroiliac joint dysfunction from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Sacroiliac joint dysfunction is a degenerative condition of the sacroiliac joint resulting in lower back pain. Diagnosis is made clinically with pain just inferior to the posterior superior iliac spine that is made worse with hip flexion, abduction, and external rotation. Treatment is usually conservative with pain management, physical therapy, and injections. Surgical management is indicated in patients with progressive symptoms who fail non-operative management. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence of sacroiliac joint dysfunction, this is frequently overlooked and can explain up to 15-30% to 30% of cases of lower back pain in the outpatient setting. Risk factors include previous lumbar spine fusion, especially where there is greater than three levels involved, and is considered analogous to adjacent segment disease. Other risk factors include pregnancy and vaginal delivery, previous trauma to the pelvis, and prior iliac crest bone graft harvesting. Moving on to etiology, in terms of pathophysiology of sacroiliac joint dysfunction, an idiopathic mechanism is the most common. It's believed to be a result of repetitive trauma to the SI joint, which can begin insidiously or acutely. Pain is hypothesized to be generated from ligamentous-slash-capsule tension, extraneous compression or shear forces, hypomobility or hypermobility, and know that increased levels of estrogen or relaxin during the third trimester of pregnancy leads to hypermobility of the SI joint. Pain is also hypothesized to be generated from aberrant joint mechanics, myofascial or kinetic chain imbalances, and inflammation. Pathophysiology of sacroiliac joint dysfunction may also have intraarticular mechanisms, specifically arthritis, infection, metabolic causes, or tumors. Sacroiliac joint dysfunction in the setting of arthritis is from inflammation and degeneration of the SI joint. This occurs in nearly 100% of patients with spondyloarthropathies like ankylosing spondylitis and Rider's syndrome. This results in subchondral sclerosis, subchondral cysts, osteophytes, joint space narrowing, intraarticular gas, and ankylosis. Infection is usually the result of hematogenous spread. Know that infection typically has unilateral involvement, and organisms include Staphylococcus aureus, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Cryptococcus organisms, and Mycobacteria tuberculosis. Predisposing factors include immunosuppression, endocarditis, and IV drug abuse. As far as metabolic causes, sacroiliac joint dysfunction leads to early degeneration of the joint. Diseases include calcium pyrophosphate crystal deposition, gout, ochronosis, hyperparathyroidism, renal osteodystrophy, and acromegaly. As far as tumors that lead to sacroiliac joint dysfunction, there are primary tumors and secondary or metastatic tumors. Primary tumors are very rare for the SI joint. However, the most common types include giant cell tumor, synovial villoadenomas, and chondrosarcomas. As far as secondary or metastatic tumors, these are the most common types of tumors that lead to sacroiliac joint dysfunction. Note that the pelvis accounts for 40% of all osseous metastasis, second to the spine. The pathophysiology of sacroiliac joint dysfunction can also be from extra-articular mechanisms, such as enthesopathy, insufficiency fractures, and post-traumatic causes. Enthesopathy is inflammation of the ligamentous attachments to the SI joint. This frequently occurs with spondyloarthropathies and are more frequently the posterior ligaments. Insufficiency fractures include osteoporotic fractures in elderly patients, as well as repetitive trauma in athletes and military recruits. Post-traumatic causes are most common after lateral compression pelvic ring injuries. As far as genetics related to sacroiliac joint dysfunction, HLA-B27 is associated with ankylosing spondylitis. 
Associated orthopedic conditions with sacroiliac joint dysfunction include lumbar spinal fusion, post-traumatic arthritis, and metastatic tumors. Medical conditions and comorbidities with sacroiliac joint dysfunction include ankylosing spondylitis, gout, pseudogout, and infections. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over osteology, muscles, ligaments, innervation, and biomechanics. So starting with osteology, the sacroiliac joint is an articulation of the ilium and the sacrum. Starting with osteology of the sacroiliac joint, this is an articulation of the ilium and the sacrum. And note that the sacroiliac joint is the largest axial joint in the body. Keep in mind that the sacroiliac joint is considered synovial, even though the superior 75% is not synovial. The sacroiliac or SI joint has a surface area of 17.5 centimeters squared. The articular surface changes with age. It is flat until puberty. By age 30, ridges form on the iliac articular surface. Then the synovial surface begins to erode by age 50. And ankylosis is common in men by age 50. Moving on to muscles, the ones to know include the gluteus maximus, gluteus medius, erector spinae, latissimus dorsi, biceps femoris, as well as the oblique and transverse abdominis. Note that the gluteus medius has fibrous extensions that attach to the anterior and posterior joint capsule. The biceps femoris has attachments to the sacrotuberous ligament as well. Moving on to the ligaments, the ones to know include the anterior joint capsule and ligaments, the posterior interosseous ligament, the sacrotuberous ligament, and the sacrospinous ligament. The anterior joint capsule and ligaments are relatively thin. The posterior interosseous ligament forms the posterior border of the joint capsule, and there is usually a rudimentary or absent posterior joint capsule. The sacrotuberous ligament attaches from the anterior sacrum and the SI joint to the ischial tuberosity. Finally, the sacrospinous ligament attaches from the anterior sacrum and the SI joint to the ischial spine. Moving on to innervation of the sacroiliac joint, anterior innervation is from the L2 to S2 ventral rami and sacral plexus, while posterior innervation comes from L4 to S4 dorsal rami. Moving on to biomechanics, the SI joint functions as a triplanar shock absorber. This dissipates loads of the upper trunk and facilitates parturition. Know that the SI joint can withstand a medial directed load six times greater than the lumbar spine. However, it fails in 120th the axial load of the lumbar spine. Know that sacral compression with weight bearing creates a quote keystone in arch effect where the muscles with fibers perpendicular to the SI joint also generate compression. Know that loss of SI joint motion hinders the ability to dissipate forces. Remember that there is complex motion at the SI joint, which includes gliding, rotation, tilting, and nodding, otherwise known as nutation, which is the most common form of motion. This is described as backward rotation of the ilium on the sacrum, and counter-nutation is the forward rotation of the ilium on the sacrum. Another complex motion at the SI joint is translation. Joint motion is limited to less than 4 degrees of rotation and 1.6 millimeters of translation. Motion of the SI joint is progressively decreased with age, and this typically happens at around age 40 to 50 for men and greater than 50 for women. Moving on to presentation of sacroiliac joint dysfunction, symptoms include certain pain patterns where pain usually presents just inferior to the posterior superior iliac spine. This is also a frequent pain referral area of other spine pathologies. Know that only 4% of patients will complain of pain above L5, and this pain can radiate past the knee and into the foot. Know that wearing a tight-fitting belt may improve symptoms in these patients. On physical exam, inspection reveals patients that may have an antalgic gait. As far as palpation, be sure to identify focal areas of tenderness, such as the sacral sulcus, which is the most tender location, and the posterior superior iliac spine, which is the second most tender location. 
As far as motion, be sure to evaluate the hip and knee for underlying pathologies. On neurovascular exam, in isolated SI joint dysfunction, patients are neurovascularly intact. However, pain-inhibited weakness may be present. As far as provocative tests, as a quick overview, this is based on a battery of tests and know that no single test has 100% diagnostic accuracy. Greater than three positive tests is highly suggestive of the diagnosis. So some of these provocative tests include the Patrick's test, otherwise known as the Faber test, Fortin's finger test, Ganslin's test, SI compression test, anterior sacral thrust test, SI distraction test, and a straight leg raise. So starting with Patrick's test, this is also called the flexion, abduction, and external rotation test, otherwise known as the Faber test. The patient will report pain in the SI joint with this maneuver. Groin pain suggests iliopsoas tendonitis or internal hip pathology. Fortin's finger test is considered positive if the patient localizes pain twice to the region inframedial to the PSIS. Ganslin's test is performed with the affected side hip extended off the examination table and the unaffected side hip and knee flexed and held by the patient. Shearing across the SI joint causes pain. The SI compression test is performed with the patient lying lateral on the exam table. Medially directed force is applied over the iliac crest on the affected side, and reproduction of pain is considered positive. The anterior sacral thrust test is performed with the patient positioned prone on the examination table, and then anteriorly directed force is applied to the sacrum. The test is considered positive if pain is reproduced in the SI joint. The SI distraction test is when the patient is supine on the examination table, a posteriorly directed force is placed over the ASIS. The test is considered positive when pain is reproduced in the SI joint. Finally, a straight leg raise is used to detect radiculopathy due to a herniated disc. This is usually negative in the setting of SI joint dysfunction. This may be positive if the leg is brought above 60 degrees of elevation and is caused by increased SI joint motion at this level of elevation. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, lateral, internal oblique, external oblique, inlet, and outlet views of the pelvis, and all these views are important to rule out other pelvic pathology. Another recommended view is a flamingo view, which is indicated where there is suspicion of pelvic instability. These are alternating single-leg standing films of the pelvis. Other recommended views include SI joint views, as well as an AP lateral flexion and extension views of the lumbar spine to identify other spinal pain generators. Findings can include joint space narrowing, subchondral sclerosis, subchondral cysts, osteophytes, and ankylosis. As far as sensitivity and specificity of radiographs, up to 25% of asymptomatic patients over the age of 50 will have abnormal SI joints in the radiographs. A CT scan has a poor diagnostic power compared to SI joint injections, however, can be indicated when deformity correction or surgical intervention is planned. As far as views, you should obtain sagittal and coronal views of the pelvis and sacrum, along with 3D reconstructions. An MRI is done to exclude other diagnoses, but can be indicated for the identification of tumors, an infectious process, or soft tissue components. Moving on to a bone scan, studies have reported on the predictive power of SI joint pathology with SI joint injections. As far as sensitivity and specificity, the specificity is 90%, sensitivity is 12%, positive predictive value is 86%, and negative predictive value is 72%. As far as the differential diagnosis for sacral joint dysfunction, know the top five key differential, which is lumbar spinal stenosis, degenerative disc disease, hip osteoarthritis, hip labral tear, and lumbar disc herniation. Moving on to the treatment of sacroiliac joint dysfunction, this can be non-operative or operative. 
Non-operative management includes oral medication, physical therapy, a pelvic belt, and prolotherapy, as well as SI joint corticosteroid injections and radiofrequency ablation. So oral medication, physical therapy, a pelvic belt, and prolotherapy is indicated as first line of treatment. As far as modalities, starting with oral medications, this mainly involves NSAIDs to reduce the inflammatory process associated with pain. Opioid medications should be used sparingly. There should be a minimum of four weeks of non-operative modalities trialed before proceeding with an SI joint injection. Physical therapy may or may not include hot-slash-cold therapy. Treatment focuses on addressing core muscle strengthening, proprioception, and flexibility to correct lumbopelvic and hip biomechanics. A pelvic belt is a belt that applies medially directed force on the greater trochanters. This is a 4-8 to eight inch wide belt that is applied around the greater trochanters. This is an external device that mimics the function of the ligaments. The pelvic belt limits the motion and shear forces across the SI joint by providing compression. Prolotherapy is controversial, but involves phenol or glucose-based solutions injected at the base of the ligamentous complexes to induce scarring. This generates an inflammatory response resulting in fibroblastic migration and resultant scar that stabilizes the joint. As far as outcomes of non-operative management, this is the most effective in the acute phase of pain. Note that the pelvic belt is more effective for SI joint pain following pregnancy. Prolotherapy is more effective in the setting of ligamentous laxity. Moving on to SI joint corticosteroid injections, this is indicated as the second line of treatment. As far as outcomes, there is a 60% success rate in pain relief at 6 months. Know that greater than 75% reduction in SI joint pain following a single injection is confirmatory of the diagnosis. And there may be greater than 50% reduction in SI joint pain following two injections. Remember that there are lower success rates in patients with previous lumbar fusion. Radiofrequency ablation is indicated as the third line of treatment, and as far as the technique, this targets the lateral branches of the sacral nerve roots. As far as outcomes, efficacy is limited due to the inability to denervate the anterior neural structures of the SI joint. Moving on to operative options, the ones to know include open SI joint arthrodesis and minimally invasive SI joint arthrodesis. Open SI joint arthrodesis is indicated to confirm the diagnosis of SI joint dysfunction as the primary pain generator. It's also indicated when there's poor response to non-operative treatment options, patients with aberrant SI joint anatomy, sacral dysmorphism or revision surgery, and note that previously infection was the only indication for arthrodesis. As far as outcomes, there has been new literature with favorable outcomes in appropriately selected patients. Finally, moving on to minimally invasive SI joint arthrodesis, indications include a confirmed diagnosis of SI joint dysfunction as the primary pain generator, poor response to non-operative treatment, and normal SI joint anatomy. As far as outcomes, as well as comparison of a minimally invasive SI joint arthrodesis to an open arthrodesis, a minimally invasive SI joint arthrodesis will have a shorter hospital stay, a smaller incision, theoretical decrease in surgical site infections, decreased limitation of postoperative weight-bearing, and there will be a quicker return to full weight-bearing than open arthrodesis, and decreased blood loss. Now, let's talk about some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. Starting with SI joint corticosteroid injections, as far as the technique, this is performed under fluoroscopy or ultrasound guidance. Studies have shown that without imaging, the injection is in the SI joint only 22% of the time. This can be used as both a diagnostic and therapeutic injection. However, no more than three injections should be given in a six-month period or four injections in one year. Moving on to radiofrequency ablation, the technique involves targeting the lateral branches of the sacral nerve roots. In a dorsal nerve ramus ablation, L5 to S3 dorsal rami innervate the SI joint. 
Moving on to open SI joint arthrodesis, the approach is performed through a posterior approach as the anterior is limited by vital neurovascular structures. As far as the technique, cartilage is removed and bone graft is packed into the obliterated space. This is stabilized with a posterior plate and screws, iliosacral screws, or a cage construct. These patients are made protected weight-bearing for 12 weeks following surgery. Finally, moving on to a minimally invasive SI joint arthrodesis, the approach will involve percutaneous placement of implants. As far as the technique, newer techniques involve triangular titanium porous-coated implants. Fusion occurs by bone growth onto the implant rather than direct fusion of the joint. This requires multiple implants placed across the SI joint to achieve stability. As far as complications, patients with a dysmorphic sacrum have a higher risk of iatrogenic nerve injury. Now, let's talk about some complications after surgery for sacroiliac joint dysfunction. And the one to know includes surgical site infections, wound complications, nerve injury, and pseudoarthrosis. Risk factors for surgical site infections include immunocompromised patients, patients that smoke, and patients with diabetes. Risk factors for wound complications include an open surgical technique as the wound is located in the dependent position. Risk factors for nerve injury include the minimally invasive technique and sacral dysmorphism. Nerve injury typically involves injury to the L5, S1, or S2 nerve roots. Finally, pseudoarthrosis occurs in up to 5% of cases, and this is treated with revision arthrodesis with an open surgical technique. Finally, let's talk about the prognosis of sacroiliac joint dysfunction. As far as the natural history of the disease, quality of life of patients with sacroiliac joint dysfunction is more affected than patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and mild heart failure, and it tends to be equivalent to patients with severe hip and knee arthritis. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, a 58-year-old female underwent an L2-S1 multilevel laminectomy with posterior spinal fusion and instrumentation for multilevel lumbar spinal stenosis approximately seven years ago. She was doing well initially after surgery, but over the last year, she has developed worsening lower back pain that radiates into her right buttock and down her right thigh. She denies any fevers or chills. Examination reveals pain in the SI joint that is reproduced with the Faber test, Ganslin's test, and pelvic compression test. There is no pain elicited with a straight leg raise, forward bending, and manipulation of the hip joints. The wound appears well epithelialized without surrounding erythema or associated sinus tracts. She stands with appropriate spinal alignment and has no neurological deficits. AP and lateral radiographs of the lumbar spine show stable appearance of instrumentation from L2 to S1 without evidence of pseudoarthrosis, hardware failure, or adjacent segment disease. Which of the following tests would be most appropriate to confirm her diagnosis? And the choices are 1. Hip radiographs. 2. CT of the lumbar spine. 3. Full-length standing spine radiographs. 4. Diagnostic injection of the SI joint. And 5. MRI of the lumbar spine with and without contrast. The correct answer to this question is 4. Diagnostic injection of the SI joint. So the patient is presenting with sacroiliac or SI joint dysfunction after lumbar spine fusion. A confirmatory test involves a diagnostic injection of the SI joint with a greater than 75% reduction in pain. To quickly review, SI joint dysfunction involves the arthritic or degenerative changes of the SI joint. Diagnosis can be challenging. Risk factors such as long lumbar spinal fusion and prior pelvic trauma should be identified. Three or more positive provocative physical exam tests help support the diagnosis and include 1. Patrick's or Faber's test, 2. Ganslin's test, 3. SI compression test, 4. Anterior sacral thrust test, 
and 5 SI distraction test. The diagnosis can be confirmed with both a diagnostic and therapeutic injection of the SI joint, resulting in a greater than 75% reduction of pain. Arthrodesis remains a viable option for patients with confirmed SI joint dysfunction and poor response to non-operative management. Classic open SI joint arthrodesis has been fraught with poor outcomes, but minimally invasive arthrodesis with triangular titanium implants has promising results, but these studies have been industry-sponsored. Duhan et al. performed a prospective multicenter trial of 172 patients that underwent a minimally invasive SI joint fusion for SI joint dysfunction with triangular titanium implants. The authors reported a decrease in pain scores from 79.8 to 26 at 24 months, an improvement in the Oswestry Disability Index, or ODI, from 55.2 to 31.5 at 12 months, and a 21.2% decrease in narcotic usage for SI joint pain. At one-year follow-up, CT imaging revealed a 97% bone adherence rate to the implants on both the sacral and iliac side. The authors concluded that the use of minimally invasive titanium triangular implants demonstrates significant improvement in pain, disability, and quality of life at two years. Sturesen et al. performed a prospective randomized multicenter trial of 103 patients treated with either conservative treatment or minimally invasive SI joint fusion with triangular titanium implants. They reported that the fusion group experienced a 43.3-point reduction in lower back pain scores compared to 5.7 in the conservative management group. Further, the SI joint fusion group had significantly higher improvement in ODI scores compared with the conservative management group with similar complication rates. The authors concluded that treatment of SI joint dysfunction by fusion with triangular titanium implants results in better outcomes than conservative management and is safe. Polly et al. performed a prospective multicenter study evaluating the predictive power of diagnostic SI joint injection pain response to pain relief following SI joint fusion. The average reduction in pain following SI joint injection was 80%, with a mean improvement in ODI and VAS scores reported as 24.6 and 50.9 points respectively. Further, the authors reported a much larger reduction in VAS and ODI scores in patients undergoing arthrodesis rather than non-surgical management, but due to the high crossover rate from non-surgical management, statistical analysis was not reported. The authors concluded that the degree of response to SI joint diagnostic injections did not predict the pain response after SI joint fusion. Lingutla et al. performed a systematic review and meta-analysis of observational studies reporting outcomes of SI joint fusion for lower back pain. Of the five studies that were included in the analysis, the authors reported that there was a statistically significant improvement in all outcome measures including visual analog scale, ODI scores, Majeed scores, SF36 physical and mental component scores. They concluded that SI joint fusion leads to symptomatic improvement when the SI joint is the primary pain generator. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, based on the patient's physical examination, there is no pain reproduced with hip motion, suggesting an absence of clinically significant hip arthritis. Answer 2, CT of the lumbar spine would be beneficial in revealing a pseudoarthrosis after the lumbar spine fusion. Based on the patient's physical exam, there is most likely SI joint dysfunction. Answer 3, full-length standing spine films would be useful for evaluating subsequent sagittal plane imbalance. Based on the examination, there does not appear to be sagittal plane imbalance. And finally, answer 5, magnetic resonance imaging of the lumbar spine with and without contrast would be useful for evaluating an associated chronic low-grade infection or adjacent segment disease. There does not appear to be evidence of this given the patient's history or examination. And moving on to the final question, a 70-year-old gentleman presents with left lower buttock pain five years after prior spine surgery. Lateral x-ray of the lumbar spine shows a multi-level fusion. 
He subsequently underwent a left total hip replacement one year ago that relieved all of his groin pain, but left lower buttock pain still persists. He reports improved symptoms when he wears a tight belt. On examination, he has a negative straight leg raise, a positive Faber test, and a positive Fortin's finger test. He has an injection into the affected area with greater than 75% relief of symptoms. Which of the following risk factors may have predisposed him to this condition? And the choices are 1. Age greater than 65. 2. Male gender. 3. Total hip replacement. 4. Steroid injection. And 5. Spine fusion. The correct answer to this question is 5. Spine fusion. So a prior lumbar fusion of more than three levels is felt to be a risk factor for sacroiliac or SI joint pain and dysfunction. Arriving at the diagnosis of sacroiliac joint pain and dysfunction starts with identifying the exact area of pain in the patient. Often patients will present with pain just inferior to the posterior superior iliac spine. Multiple examination maneuvers and special tests help hone in on the diagnosis with the diagnostic injection being the confirmatory test. Finally, the etiology is most often felt to be idiopathic. However, multiple risk factors exist, including prior spine surgery greater than three levels, pregnancy, vaginal delivery, prior pelvic trauma, and prior iliac crest bone graft harvest. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, age greater than 65, answer two, male gender, and answer three, prior total hip arthroplasty, are all incorrect, as none of these have been shown to be risk factors for SI joint pain and dysfunction. Answer four, steroid injection is incorrect, as a prior SI joint injection is a helpful diagnostic tool, and it's not felt to be a risk factor for the development of SI joint pain and dysfunction. That's all for this review about sacroiliac joint dysfunction. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.